so then I ended up being diagnosed with IBS, uh, which is irritable bowel syndrome, which ended up being a medical error and not being a correct diagnosis for me. And I came back with over 35 positive allergies. It turns out all of these food allergies are not technically the correct diagnosis either. And then that was when I was diagnosed with endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome, which both of those ended up not being correct diagnoses either. <laughs> Allergy testing. And at this point, I positive for over 140 different things. He kept saying it's not humanly possible to be allergic to that much. And at which point I was kind of angry with him almost because he again tried to say that I probably just had IBS. And I was like, no, been there, done that, don't have that. And then I kept telling him like, no, I have allergies. Like I have all the symptoms of allergies. I have to carry an EpiPen around. Like I have allergies. And so he ended up walking out. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb, I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Mac Doyle has been sickly since birth, and along the way, medicine gave her numerous diagnoses to explain her symptoms, none of which turned out to be correct. When Mac's allergy skin test showed her positive to over 140 foods, grasses, and pollen, the doctor didn't believe it. Impossible, he said. He told Mac she wasn't allergic to anything. She just had irritable bowel syndrome. But Mac had been there, done that with an IBS misdiagnosis before and was adamant she had allergies. Turns out the patient was right. She just needed a doctor who could connect the dots of Mac's various symptoms that pointed to mast cell activation syndrome, or MCAS. Essentially, an overactive immune response by our mast cells. Part of the problem of getting a diagnosis was that MCAS was not officially recognized until 2007. So even today, very few physicians are aware of the disease. That means patients spend many years and a lot of money trying to get a diagnosis and trying to get treatment. It also means a lot of undiagnosed MCAS patients face repeated gaslighting by physicians in a healthcare system that quickly defaults to the harmful trope, 
in your head for illnesses they can't immediately diagnose. Mac not only shares her healthcare journey experiences in finally getting a correct diagnosis, but also what she's learned about the myriad ways MCAS can manifest. If, like me, you have weird symptoms that doctors couldn't explain or they dismissed as in your head, then you'll want to hear what Mac has learned about our mast cells and how you can manage them better. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Mac and a word of warning that some folks may be triggered by Mac's experiences with the healthcare system. Great, thanks. Is Mac or Mackenzie that you prefer? Uh, whichever, I don't have a preference. Okay. Uh, so Mac, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up pretty much split between um, Kyle, Texas and Belleville, Florida. Um, I was a very active child, um, although I pretty much came out of the womb with medical issues galore <laughs> going on. Yeah, I had chronic asthma when I was born, so I did nebulizer treatments every day. Um, and then I had ear tube surgeries because I had such bad chronic uh, sinus infections and ear infections all the time. Pretty much every month I had one. Yeah, and then I had two particular injuries and in where I messed up my knee and my wrists. So from the time I was about 10 years old, I had severe arthritis in both wrists, my one knee, and then also I grew to have carpal tunnel in both wrists. So despite being active, I had a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> wow. So yeah, you've been dealing with health issues and learning how to live with health issues since you were born. Wow. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so exiting out of childhood and into adulthood, where did your life take you and how was your health during that period? I'll start probably about high school, I feel like, um, is when things really started to go downhill for me. I ended up going to the doctor because no matter what I did or what I ate, I would have GI issues after every meal, um, as well as some other weird symptoms like clearing my throat. I came out of rashes, stuff like that. Um, so then I ended up being diagnosed with IBS, uh, which is irritable bowel syndrome, which ended up being a medical error and not being a correct diagnosis for me. But so I was diagnosed with that. And then for about a year, I was on probably about 12 different medications for IBS. Um, and none of them worked. <laughs> Were these... Uh... Uh, like prescription medications? Mm -hmm. oh, so sorry. about half of them were prescription and then the other half were more um, 
homeopathic things you could buy at like Walgreens or another pharmacy. Yeah, so then I was on medications for that. And then I began having problems with like cedar fever, um, which is very prevalent in um, like central Texas or like, it's almost like hay fever um, dealing with like cedar trees. And so I was out of school for weeks at a time, pretty much every year due to cedar fever. So at that time I ended up being put on Mentelucast, which now within the last year or so has a black box warning saying that the medication causes some severe mental and psychiatric issues for those who are on the meds. So because of that medication, I ended up developing pretty severe anxiety and depression early on in my life. And when were you able to connect it to that medication? Actually, a few months ago. (laughs) Yeah, so... Um, I was on that medication. I'm still on that medication for my current diagnosis, but we'll get into that. Uh, (laughs) So, and then finally, my doctors like just took me off of all the IBS medications, um, seeing as they weren't weren't working. And then I went a year or so without any sort of official diagnosis. I just had uh, idiopathic um, GI issues. And then during my freshman year of high school, I ended up uh, going into a chiropractor um, because I was having issues with my shoulders as I was in marching band. So my shoulders were always all sorts of messed up from that activity. Um, And then I ended up being diagnosed with reverse cervical lordosis, meaning that, yeah, (laughs) crazy name, right? Uh, Meaning that the spine in the portion of my neck is bending backwards. So instead of being a backward C, it's a forward C. So yeah, I have that. <laughs> I'm still dealing with that, but really the only thing they can do for that, um, since mine's not super severe, is just chiropractic care. Oh, and so, so that may have been contributing to the shoulder problems? Yes, for sure. Yeah, that's pretty much what they've attributed to the shoulder problems is that. And then my spine is slightly curved and it twists slightly to the left at the bottom, but not enough to be considered scoliosis. So that probably also had something to do with the shoulder problems. Yeah. And then during my sophomore year of high school, I went to go get allergy tested um, because one of my neighbors at that time um, and one of my family's good friends was an allergist and an ENT. And so he suggested I get allergy tested for all of my GI problems surrounding food. And I came back with over 35 positive allergies to foods and environmental triggers, including pollens, grasses, mold, and dust mites. So. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> what was it like to get that diagnosis? Um, it made a lot of sense. We, growing up, I never really had issues with food um, when I'm referring to when I was probably in about elementary school, um, getting into middle school. I never really had issues with food. Um, I was always a picky eater, but that was about it. But once he started to do the skin prick test where they dip like a needle in the uh, proteins for that food and then stick it into your back or your arms, 
Um, and then you could tell if you're allergic by where they poked you, it raises into like a red hive. That means you're allergic to it. Um, and so when he started doing the skin prick test, he immediately noticed that I was allergic to so many different foods and so many different things. He explained that the reason why I have so many reactions to other foods that I did not test positive for is because of oral allergy syndrome, meaning that if there are some pollen that pollens that I'm allergic to that have been cross-contaminated into certain foods, even if I'm not allergic to that food, I'll have an allergic reaction to the pollen that is on that food. So yeah, getting that was very informative and kind of like a big, huge thing of clarity. Just, it explained all my problems pretty much. Right, and uh, it sounds like it may have also been validating that this was actual physical problems and not some sort of mental thing. Yeah, oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, there are definitely points where I thought I was just, you know, crazy or, you know, anything else. I thought that maybe it was just in my head or some sort of um, a psychological reaction to food that made me have the physical reaction. So definitely getting that diagnosis was um, very opening and clar clarifying. So it also sounds like it would impact your uh, dietary habits moving forward. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, which we'll get into this too, but it, it turns out all of these food allergies are not technically the correct diagnosis either. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, there's a whole nother level to this. But yeah, basically during high school, that's when I started having like the list of foods I was allergic to and slowly eliminating them. Um, some of like the key ones were like peanuts, hazelnuts, banana, soy, sesame, and corn were the big ones. And um, here in the U.S., as far as corn goes, there are 185 different names for corn and corn derivatives um, on food packaging. So it was kind of hard to really fully escape all of the allergies. Uh, and did you get a bump in quality of life by changing your dietary habits at that point? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. I was able to go out and do things more. Um, I was able to stay at events for longer periods of time, which is really nice. Um, at that point, I had started immunotherapy injections. So a real simplified explanation is they take what you're allergic to and inject it into your body over time in the hopes that you gain immunity, which it did work for some of my foods. And some of my pollens were significantly uh, had decreased effects. So um, with all of that combined, it definitely, definitely made my life easier. Oh, so being so allergic to so many things in sort of the natural green environment would limit some of the activities or the length of activities you could do in socializing? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, during high school, I was an officer for National Honor Society. And so part of what we did um, pretty much monthly was we went to a local park in town and we cleaned up the park. Uh, we planted trees that they wanted us to plant trees. We cleaned signs, we did, we picked up trash, all sorts of that kind of thing. And so I ended up having to talk to our supervisor and be like, 
I can't be outside in this grass and all by these trees for a long period of time. So pretty much I got switched from actually doing like the planting of the trees and things like that to um, just like taking photos for everybody for our website and stuff like that. So you're in high school, you get diagnosed with all of these allergies and you yeah. make adjustments towards that and you're trucking along thinking that's your diagnosis. Yeah, so then all the allergy testing happened during my sophomore year of high school. So then I went my junior and senior year of high school thinking that the allergy diagnosis was completely correct and everything was fine. And then I get into my freshman year of college and I've moved states. So a whole bunch of new pollens to get used to, things like that. And then I ended up still having some problems that at first I thought were GI problems. Um, but then I ended up going to a gynecologist because my family has um, a history of things like endometriosis and endometrial cancer and things like that. Uh, so I just wanted to get everything checked out, make sure that that wasn't happening to me at that time. And then that was when I was diagnosed with endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome, which both of those ended up not being correct diagnoses either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. So kind of dodged a bullet there. But how long yeah. was it between when you got those diagnoses before you found out that those weren't real either? Um, about a year. Yeah. So um, I got put on stronger medications, um, things like birth control and things like that to help keep my hormones at bay um, to try to uh, stop the progression of the endometriosis and the polycystic ovary syndrome. So then we get into my sophomore year of college, which is when I finally get the correct diagnosis. I ended up running out of my immunotherapy injections. Um, so I ended up going to an allergist up here. Um, and I'm going to say his name because he's been so incredibly great with everything. His name is Dr. Vinay Mehta. And so I told him that I wanted to get more allergy injections because I feel like they were helping. Um, but in order to do that, you have to get retested first to make sure that your allergies are still there or that you haven't developed any new ones. So then he starts to do the allergy testing. And at this point, I pop positive for over 140 different things, including foods, chemicals, stuff like that. And previously, um, it was what number? 35. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, Dr. Mehta was just flabbergasted. He was like, there's no way this is, you're allergic to this much. He kept saying it's not humanly possible to be allergic to that much. And at which point I was kind of angry with him almost because he again tried to say that I probably just had IBS. And I was like, no, been there, done that, don't have that. And then I kept telling him, like, no, I have allergies. Like, I have all the symptoms of allergies. I have to carry an EpiPen around. Like, I have allergies. So at that point, I was getting very frustrated in his office. Um, and so he ended up walking out. And then about 20 minutes later, he came back and he um, asked to see my phone. And he pulled up on Wikipedia a page about mast cell activation syndrome, which is essentially um, an immune disorder that affects every part of your body. And so the most common symptoms of it are having a lot of food allergies and 
reacting to um, pollutants in the air, such as smoke and pollens um, and things like that. So, and for folks who aren't familiar with mast cell activation syndrome, and the acronym is MCAS. Yes, MCAS. And what are mast cells? Yeah, so your mast cells are essentially a type of white blood cell. Um, they are responsible for releasing chemicals, which are called mediators, um, that react to different things. So like if you twist your ankle or sprain your ankle, your ankle is going to swell. And that swelling comes from the mast cells releasing chemicals. It's also the same thing where you get bit by a mosquito and you get like a little bump and the bump's red and really itchy. That response comes from the mast cells releasing a specific mediator called histamine, which is the biggest one that people with MCAS have a problem with. Okay, okay, thanks for explaining yeah. that. So you're in the <laughs> office and he, said, and he pulls up the Wikipedia page for MCAS? Yeah, and he's making me read through all the symptoms, listing off which ones I have. Um, and I had every single symptom listed on the Wikipedia page except for osteoporosis, which I'm too young to have, kind of. <laughs> and so he's telling me more about this, um, this disorder and he says it's pretty much very rare, uh, which it is classified uh, under the World Health Organization as being a rare disease, even though it's suspected to be more common than it actually is. Um, so I, he's reading off all of this and I'm sitting there just laughing because it makes so much sense. Um, things that were happening like uh, when I would take a shower, once I got out of the shower, I would be really red. And I always thought, oh, I just have sensitive skin, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but that is actually a, a symptom of the mast cell activation syndrome. And it's essentially you having an allergic reaction to the water from the shower or the temperature from the shower. And so just small things like that, that I never really thought of as weird symptoms or things that weren't normal. Uh, were actually symptoms of this uh, disorder, and can I ask yeah, you a I was question just, about yeah. the showering thing? Because yeah. uh, I experienced that too, but only with certain patches of skin, not mm -hmm. all of my skin. Is that consistent? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is. Um, the thing that is difficult with MCAS is that it varies greatly from person to person. So. You could very well have MCAS, but only have one symptom. Or you could have MCAS and have 40 symptoms. Some people go, it, go their entire lives not knowing they have it because it doesn't bother them. And then there are others like me who have a more severe form of it to where um, we become disabled by it. Okay. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very well possible that if you only have a reaction on some portions of your skin, that that could still be consistent with it. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so I was just, he was reading off all the symptoms and telling me more about it. And I was just laughing because it all made so much sense. And um, it was actually kind of almost ridiculous in a way, like just how much it made sense and how long I've gone in my life, 20 years, not knowing that I had this disorder. 
and at this point my boyfriend who I live with is also at the appointment with me and he's just shaking his head and laughing and he's like yeah that's you that makes sense that fits everything um so at that same appointment he also diagnosed me with a few other things um mast cell activation being like the big one he also diagnosed me with multiple chemical sensitivity which a lot of people with MCAS have, where you just react to chemicals and things like that and sense. Um, so would that be a subcategory of MCAS? Or is that yeah. a separate thing? Um, actually, both. Um, multiple chemical sensitivity, you can have it completely, you can have it without having MCAS, but it can also be a symptom of MCAS. So... And that's what a lot of the symptoms of MCAS are, is that you can have it completely devoid and completely separate of MCAS and not have MCAS, or you could have both that symptom and MCAS. So yeah, that's another thing that makes it so difficult to diagnose. So you've also got the MCS diagnosis. Yes, and then dermatographism, um, which is another pretty popular symptom of MCAS. So dermatographism basically is still a mast cell reaction, but it's if, say, your skin gets scratched or poked or prodded, um, that skin ends up swelling and basically welting into a big red welt hive type thing. And so I had that, and he suspected that that is why when they were doing the skin prick test, that I reacted to so many things is that they weren't actual reactions. It was just the dermatographism acting up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then he also confirmed the previous oral allergy syndrome. I do still have that, um, as well as multiple vitamin deficiencies, particularly vitamin D, uh, which is also common with MCAS, as well as chronic migraines and chronic headaches chronic idiopathic uticaria. So basically like the skin turns into red, um, like blotches or hives that seemingly happen for no reason whatsoever. Um, and then also gustatory rhinitis. So basically anytime I eat something, it doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter if it's a safe food or a dangerous food, anything like that, uh, my sinuses will try to flush themselves from the motion of chewing. Essentially, the most easy way to know if you have it is if your nose runs anytime you eat. Oh, wow, I've never heard yeah. of that one before. Yeah, pretty fun. <laughs> pretty fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and all of those other diagnoses are also symptoms of the MCAS. So... Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you've got this correct diagnosis, multiple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then what did you do with that? He ended up starting me on a medication called Zolaire, um, which is essentially a minor immunosuppressant. And it's two shots a month, every month for what I do it. Um, so he started me on that. So then I had to wait in the office for two hours to make sure I didn't react to that. And then sitting in the office, I had to call my parents and be like, hey, so guess what? I have a rare immune disorder. So that was a fun conversation. 
and then he also started me on a whole bunch of other medications, primarily histamine blockers and antihistamines. So just sort of the ones that like I buy at the drugstore? Yeah, exactly. Um, pretty much every single one that you can buy in the drugstore, I have prescribed to me. So um, Claritin, Zyrtec, Zizol, Fexafenidine, even Pepsid, the heartburn medication. Um, that is also a histamine blocker. So I'm on that as well. And then also the Montelukast that I was talking about previously with the black box warning, which some people may know better as Singular. Yeah, so that medication, and then that's when he ended up telling me about Montelukast and told me that the Montelukast is what caused the psychiatric problems that I had. It was that same day. So yeah, I just started treatment from there, and then he told me I needed to uh, essentially stop exercising because I was reacting, having allergic reaction to exercising, which having such like a, an active childhood, I never would have imagined that that that, that was a thing. Um, yeah, so as a former triathlete before I got sick, tell me about that. How are, how is your dysfunctional response to exercise? How does that manifest? Yeah, so probably the easiest way for me to explain it like so in high school I was in marching band and at this point I was living in central Texas so we were outside in the 120 degree heat on the black black asphalt pretty much eight hours a day every day in the summer um, just training for marching band which wow I had no idea yeah. that was so intense yeah, it's <laughs> marching band's really intense in Indiana and also in Texas, and that's pretty much it. That's all it's really big. Um, but yeah, so I'm down there doing that, and then I constantly just, I had such bad um, bouts of depression during marching band, and I ended up just being so exhausted to where at one point, one of my doctors thought, thought that I had narcolepsy because I just could not physically stay awake. I would break out in like the red uh, patches of skin again. So things that seem so normal and just like, they almost seem like just exhaustion from pretty much working out eight hours a day. So that was how that started to manifest. And then I also had problems with like tachycardia issues like irregular heartbeats and being able to like feel and hear your heart beating like really hard. That also would happen during uh, when I was exercising um, as well as a super increased heart rate. My like resting heart rate, like right here, right now, my heart rate's probably at 120, 130. Yeah. So <laughs> um, as you can imagine, my exercising heart rate was much higher than that. So yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so if just sitting here, your heart rate's like 120, which is where mm -hmm. you're, you're supposed to be when you're sort of doing low aerobic workout, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, what sort of exercise can you do now? Yeah. So pretty much all I'm allowed to do is like gentle Pilates and like gentle yoga, stretching, things like that. When you're talking about the Pepsid and all the over-the-counter antihistamines you were taking, do you take them daily or as needed, or how do you manage those? 
Yeah. So um, I take every single one daily, um, twice a day, every day. And then I also have a, what I call my emergency reserve of uh, medications like Benadryl and then extra Zyrtec um, and then also low dose uh, like baby aspirin. I take those three pretty much as needed. Okay. And the low dose baby aspirin anti-inflammatory? Yeah, so part of um, MCAS's uh, inflammation is pretty rapid. It happens pretty much everywhere. Yeah, that helps with that. And also um, baby aspirin for those who can tolerate it um, tends to be a mast cell stabilizer, meaning that it just kind of calms the mast cells down a little bit and like essentially tells them not to release as many uh, mediator chemicals. So that's also what that does as well. Okay, so it's when the mast cells degranulate and release these yes. mediators that you get the symptoms. Yes, exactly. Oh, and some of these antihistamines are stabilizing the... Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So how is your experience of anxiety and depression now that, you, that you're still on that black box medication? Yeah, so... Um, Essentially, when it comes to MCAS, that specific medication is pretty much prescribed across the board for all MCAS patients, and there's really no true alternative for it. So I'm still taking that medication. So what we're basically trying to do is to mitigate the symptoms of that medication. So I'm on two different types of uh, antidepressants to help with that, um, as well as having regular checkups with my doctor who works for an integrated health clinic. Um, and so they have like a behavioral specialist come in and talk to me and things like that. So, and yeah. how are you finding the antidepressants? Yeah, they're great. <laughs> I love them. Um, and working for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, another part of the MCAS as far as the depression goes is that, um, MCAS, when you have reactions, those chemicals, when they interact with your brain, can also cause you to have um, depressed episodes and things like that. So a lot of people with MCAS are on antidepressants because the MCAS alone can cause things like suicidal thoughts and things like that when you're having an allergic reaction to something. I remember uh, learning probably 10, 15 years ago that one of the early antidepressants, they later found out that it also had antiviral properties. Mm. So, and if it was killing out some viruses, that would decrease inflammation. So the rec yeah. realization was, oh, so some people's depression is just inflammation. Yeah, exactly. And that's what a lot of people with MCAS have is just inflammation closer in the brain that causes that. So, mm -hmm. exactly. So I wonder if the antidepressants that you're taking and other folks take may also have anti-inflammatory properties. Yeah, um, that would make sense. I'm sure they do. Yeah, <laughs> either way they work for me, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so you found out you have MCAS majorly and all of these other associated yeah. illnesses with it. What did you find out about the healthcare system? Like how come nobody diagnosed this earlier? Yeah, so um, basically the main reason is that 
Um, MCAS didn't actually become an official diagnosis until 2007. Um, so it's a fairly new disease in the eyes of the healthcare system. It's been around for forever, but our doctors previously had diagnosed it as mastocytosis, which is a, another kind of mast cell disease. But essentially the big difference between mastocytosis and MCAS is that in mastocytosis, you have too many mast cells. Uh, whereas in MCAS, I have the correct amount of mass, mass cells, but they're just overactive. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's fairly new and was being diagnosed as something else for a very long time. So that explains why so few physicians know about it, because it seems to take, I think, 15 or 20 years for mm -hmm. new information to filter through down to the GP's offices. Yeah, exactly. And um, as far as I'm aware, it's not currently listed in any of the popular medical textbooks that are being shown in like medical school and things like that. So that's probably why as well. Okay. And so we connected on Twitter because your Twitter handle is mast something or Mac with yeah, Mac. Yeah, Mac with mast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about why are you on Twitter talking about mast? That account is also my personal Twitter account. Um, it started off as my personal Twitter account back in like my senior year of high school and things like that. So once I became aware of the MCAS and that I had that diagnosis, um, I started really looking for a community of other people who had it. And so I just did a search on Twitter one day um, about MCAS and a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of profiles came up, things like that. I had one girl in particular, which I'm not sure if you want me to say her name or not, um, but she reached out to me personally and was like, hey, I saw you just got diagnosed with MCAS. I have MCAS as well. Like, let me know if you have any questions or need anything. And then she also referred me to a whole bunch of other people who had MCAS and things like that as well. So Twitter, very quickly became a big community for me to figure out answers, figure out how to treat and just live with this disease. It's, I ended up being diagnosed in February of this year. So it's only been a few months, but all the knowledge that I've learned due to that has been so immense that now, and especially over time, um, I have been helping others who are recently diagnosed with MCAS or searching for a diagnosis with MCAS to help them figure out their symptoms and help them figure out their treatment and just tell them the knowledge that I have learned from living with it for a few months. Wow, wow. Yeah. Uh, and are there other social media places where folks with MCAS are gathering, maybe Facebook? Yes, actually, um, <clears throat> Facebook is another big one. Uh, particularly, there's one really big page called Mast Cell Activation Syndrome Community, and that's probably one of the biggest MCAS groups. Um, sorry, within that group, um, that group has been recognized by Dr. Afrin, who is currently the world's only specialist in MCAS, who is uh, like one of the bigger names, like he's an expert on MCAS, you could say. So he's coming to that group to talk about things like research, how COVID-19 has affected us. Oh, um, his, how does it? 
Yeah, so it seems to so vary. So technically, we are in the highest risk group for COVID-19 because of our MCAS. Uh, because our immune system is overactive, it means that the COVID-19 works faster through our system. So in that group particular, we've had a few people who have tested positive, unfortunately. Um, one of those girls did pass away pretty early on from it. But then we've had other people who didn't even know that they had COVID-19. Um, and they had virtually no symptoms. And then they ended up testing negative at some point afterwards, as in they didn't have it anymore. So it still does affect us on such like a range of scale. Like it affects everybody differently, just like how the disease affects everyone differently. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, still got to be frightening knowing that you're in a higher risk group. Oh yeah, for sure. But yeah, the Facebook group has been great about that, keeping us up to date with research on COVID-19 and things like that. Uh, further back to the MCAS side of that group, uh, that group also has a map where all incoming members who have an official diagnosis put where they were diagnosed and by who, so that other people who are seeking a diagnosis, um, who think that they do have MCAS and want to talk to a competent doctor about it, can see in their region where there is a doctor who is knowledgeable about the disorder. Uh, so they can see that. Yeah. And then the group also has a bunch of subgroups that are separated by region. So there's one for Australia, there's one for England, and there's a bunch for the U.S. and Canada and things like that, in which I actually admin and moderate the um, Midwest, like the farming states group, as we call it. So Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, things like that. Okay. And I'll include links to the Facebook and to your Twitter in the show notes for the episode so people okay. can connect cool. with you guys in your community there. Now, I think uh, I learned from one of your tweets, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I could easily be wrong, is that some folks have mast cell reactions during descents of airline flights. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because that was a light bulb for me. I could not figure out why when coming into descent, sometimes my blood pressure would drop and I'd pass yeah. out and paramedics would have to take me off the plane and this whole big scene. Um, oh, yeah. That's, that sounds exactly like it. Um, for me personally, I also have the blood pressure drop. I have yet to actually faint from a descent on an airplane. Uh, but there have been times when I've gone off the airplane afterwards and fainted. So pretty much now I avoid all airplanes. Um, a lot of us, myself included, also have problems with the um, ascent, so going upwards. My portion of that's a little more extreme. So I live on the third floor of my building and just going up the two flights of stairs to the third floor causes the exact same reactions as what an airplane does for me. So. <laughs> and is that because because you're taking the elevator or are you walking up? Yeah, so my building actually doesn't have an elevator, so it's just walking up the stairs. My understanding of it is that it has to do with our mass cells reacting to the pressure changes, like the air pressure changes that occur like within our sinuses, so that's why like on airplanes your ears will pop 
once you reach a certain point is that it's your sinus cavities trying to restabilize that pressure in your ears. And so from my understanding, that is what causes MCAS people to have reactions to um, differences in altitudes. Wow. So yeah. it sounds like you're going to have to live on the ground floor some. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, once my lease is up here, well, I'll be looking for a ground floor apartment for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're a very delicate flower. I always call myself mm -hmm. a delicate flower, but I think you're even more delicate. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nak, thank you so much for sharing your healthcare journey and experiences and yeah. all the information about MCAS. It's just been absolutely fascinating. I, I have no doubt that many people will be going, oh my, I wonder if that's what's been going on with oh. me and look into and look up you guys on social media and stuff. Yeah, hopefully. My uh, DMs on Twitter are always open, so anybody can message me with um, any questions or concerns they have or just to connect. Great. Oh, one final question. What are you studying yes. in school? Um, currently, I am a mathematics major um, with a minor in business administration. Okay. And what do you hope to do with that? I have no idea. Um, originally, when I came into college, I was double majoring in math and physics with the hopes of being an astrophysicist, but turns out I hate physics. Um, so I ended up switching to computer science and mathematics. And then I hated computer science as well. Um, and the stress from having that dual major um, took a real toll on my MCAS because stress and emotions, like strong emotions, are also a trigger for the MCAS. So a lot of us are unable to be in super stressful situations or even really happy situations because uh, that excitement can also trigger the mast cells. Um, so I ended up dropping that computer science major just due to the MCAS and due to the stress that I have for dual majoring. So currently I have no idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know I don't want to teach, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, well, it's good to know what you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, Mac. Uh, yeah. And uh, rest hard. Yes, definitely. And a special thanks to Matt for sharing not only her personal journey, but for what she's learned about MCAS and sharing that information with us. I personally found it helpful and validating, and it certainly explained some of the symptoms I've experienced over the years. Thanks for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.